0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafal Macieczewski, and we have another badass guest for you guys. His name is Josh Henkin. Say hello.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: So to start us off, if you can just tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into the industry?
1: Sure. I'm probably best known for our DVRT system, and that stands for Dynamic Variable Resistance Training, and that's our system of uh, functional training that we use predominantly with our Ultimate Sandbag, but we use with other uh, functional tools as well. And uh, I've been doing that for the past almost 12 years now. Um, before that, you know, I was an athlete. Basketball uh, was my sport. I was a consistently injured athlete, which gave me my motivation and inspiration into uh, strength conditioning and uh, shaped a lot about what our system is about today. Um, from there, I you know, worked in a, you know, strength conditioning in the university level, owned my own gym for about 10 years, and now I travel almost exclusively teaching our program at conferences and uh, training facilities all over the world.
0: That's awesome. What sport did you play back in college, sorry? Basketball. Basketball. Yeah. And what was your injury?
1: Well, when I was 14, I herniated L4, L5 after getting shoved in the back. So for more of my life, I've had to deal with injuries than not. So you know, in retrospect, that's given me a great gift in being able to you know, work with people at a higher level and be more empathetic and sort of create better programs because definitely wasn't a case where I was a naturally gifted athlete and everything came easy. So you know, being able to help people going through the same sort of challenges has really allowed us to, I think, give a, a much better process to you know fitness and strength conditioning.
0: Oh, definitely. At fourteen, that that's so early to get like a low pack injury. eh?
1: Yeah, I'm a head. I'm a early starter of things. I'm very motivated.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, especially nowadays, because like everybody has some sort of like low back issue, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like I kind of look at it as like it's almost a blessing in disguise. Because now, if you have a client that has low back inju- uh, low back injury, you could be like, "Oh, I went through the same thing," and kind of almost know what they're going through.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, you know, I think clients for the most part look at us as like superhumans. you know we're the crazy people that like being sore we like to torture ourselves we want to make the sweat angels and you know our clients are like oh my god I just I just want to make it to the gym today and maybe work out a little bit um so you know having us come back to reality where they hear you know that we're very much like them and we've gone through maybe challenges even greater than they have like uh you know I've had two spinal fusions over my lifetime and You know, one was necessary after, you know, losing my right leg. And so I can relate to people very much so they don't look at me like I'm going to try just to kill them or beat them up, that I'm going to take a more intelligent approach to them. And I'm actually going to listen to what they need and want, not just sort of give them what I feel is appropriate. So it makes you much more, I think, a better teacher and coach because part of that, you know, a large part of coaching is just directing and leading people in a positive direction.
0: Oh, definitely. Uh, For your spinal fusion, what was your like rehab process for that?
1: Um, you know, I'm very fortunate, so I'm married to a physical therapist. But she turned me around and she's like, Well, you know what to do. Um, you know, since I had been, it was a 25 year old disc injury, so it was the disc that finally just failed from when I was 14 and basically started compressing upon my spinal cord. So when they did the uh fusion, basically they went through the front side, which is well, you know, it sounds gnarly and it's actually better than going through the back, but from a recovery standpoint, it's like. Someone is basically having like a C section. So, you know, any female listeners can understand. uh, I am now a lot more empathetic to the ladies out there that go through (laughs) such a thing. Uh, When you start cutting up open the abdominal wall, you know, not only are you changing, you know, the spine, but you're going to change the musculature, the fascia. Um, So, I had to start from a point of like ground zero where I, I had neuropathy in my right leg and I had a diagnosis of two years before I'd be able to really use my right leg again. And within six months, I was back to doing single leg based training. So, but that had to go through a system, and that you know, really for us is the testament to what we do of, you know, having a process and a methodology behind how we approach training. And basically, I just followed our approach and our methodology, and that goes from understanding principles to you know, you know, progression, uh, you know, from starting from the ground and learning how you know what is core activation really mean. What is tension and stability relate to one another how's nervous system coordination go into repattering movement and you know when i go back to my neurologist he goes what the hell are you doing um because like you're not supposed to be recovering this fast it's nothing he could really understand but it's based upon a system and a plan and so you know where i was at, going to a therapist for a little bit just to get some manual therapy stuff done for the scar tissue like it took them two to three weeks to give me like an initial exercise and i was already exercising You know, I had clearance pretty early on, so I was exercising before the therapists were ready. And all I was doing was doing more coordination activation type stuff, just trying to wake up my body after the trauma. And I think, you know, having gone through that process gives me a different outlook on things because what people think isn't possible or what they prioritize in their training and for their goals is very different to how we sort of look at and communicate to people what they should be really trying to accomplish when they sort of express what they want to achieve with their results.
0: Oh, yeah. It's such a mental game, too, because when someone gets injured, they're like, oh, great, everything's over. Whereas if you kind of go into it, a positive like, mindset, it's like, okay, this is what I need to do, and this is what I need to accomplish in the next six weeks, and I might be back to normal faster than an average person.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is a couple of things with, with injury, especially the, depending how severe the injury is. One, anyone who's been in chronic pain, uh, their biggest fear is going back into pain. So I think as coaches, sometimes we want to push people and we want to get them. And we haven't earned their trust yet, that they're a little bit fearful that, you know, we're going to put them back in that state. Because unfortunately, I think a lot of people, even I I would say probably us included, you know, a great example, a coach said, a colleague of mine said, if your mom said they just hired a personal trainer, would you be psyched or would you be skeptical? (laughs) And I think that says volumes about our industry. I mean, I don't know about you, I'd be kind of skeptical, you know. Uh, What are they going to do? And and so I think for a lot of people, there's a little mistrust in the industry that we're just going to beat them up. And so when you're coming off an injury or you've had a chronic injury, your fear is being back in the pain. Uh, So I think the first thing that coaches got to do is earn clients trust and put them in positions to succeed and show them that they're going to not go ahead and put them back in that state which is tough because at the same time, pain is such a complicated issue. And you know, what's pain for one person is discomfort for another. And so being helping people distinguish pain from discomfort can be a big challenge too because you, know, you may have very modest and, and things that set someone off just neurologically or just didn't sit right with their body, and then you have to go back to the drawing board. I know I went through that process myself where something very mundane would just set me off. Uh, my body just wasn't ready for it. So I just had to take note of it. So as much as we come in with a plan, I think you have to be flexible in that plan. And that's where I think like, having a system and a process is a lot more helpful because if you don't have a system in place when something doesn't work out then you don't know how to properly adjust it for that individual and you start just sort of randomly grabbing for things rather than having a a a approach that makes more sense and you can look at why that person isn't ready and where do you start them from and how are we going to progress them so it's i I give it more more so of like if you went to a doctor with a really good bedside manner and a philosophy they're going to have a plan for your health approach. They're not going to just give you a medication. They're going to look at a more global aspect of the of what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I find it kind of interesting when clients would rather go to a doctor if they injured something rather than a physiotherapist because then the doctor will just say, well, don't use your shoulder for six to eight weeks and it'll get better. And Then you, one, take off time off the gym and you're probably going to build some bad habits of not exercising at all because you know, yeah, you have a bad shoulder, but what's wrong with the rest of your body? There's still stuff that you can do along with the rehab stuff that you need.
1: Sure, I mean, I, I you know. I think it's just a, I mean, it's it's like anything else. You know, as much as I think, you know, coaches we give people, you know, the general public a hard time about some of their decision making. You know, if, if we put ourselves in a position, let's say, find out the best accountant, you know, or lawyer. I I don't know. I I, I do what probably a lot. You know clients do, which is they look for the people with the most education. I, I want to find someone with that Harvard degree. And, yeah. um, and and so I think it's just, unfortunately, we have such a young industry and it, it hasn't been a profession for very long. So the attributes to look for in a professional are not very well laid out. You know, I did a presentation for the NSCA uh, last year and, and I, I talked about how the American Beauticians uh, Society was formed in like 1936. And the NSA was formed in 1979. And so, if you think of from a longevity of a profession, that's a very short time. Yeah. And, you know, beauticians associations have been around longer than, you know, personal training and, and strength and conditioning. So, I think it's a little bit of the headaches of growth and development. And, you know, our, it's also an industry without much regulation. So, I could understand why, you know, someone that gets hesitant, they, I would think a doctor would be more qualified than a personal trainer, but you know, I, I understand also it comes down to education of that person and also it comes down to us making connections and networks with other health professionals so we can have an open line of communication and gain that respect and have them understand you know, what it is that we can bring to the table to help their patients and their clients.
0: That's a tough thing with our industries. You don't really see a lot of coaches that are, say, 35 or older. You see a lot of younger guys and girls that are like early 20s but they're so hungry for information and they want to get better. But then, you know, if a client's in their fifties, you're going to be kind of hesitant to hire somebody that's 21, but who knows, they might be like the next best thing. Right.
1: Sure. You know, but the example I always give to people is, I mean, when I had my training facility, most of my clients were probably women, uh, that were over 35. And, you know, contrary to what probably some people would tell you, I'm not a woman over 35, so I'm hard to relate uh, to those clients. Um, but what is I, built a level of trust with them and respect because, you know, there was things I did to make sure that they knew I was hearing what they were saying and that I was relating things and communicating to them in terms that were important to them. So I always made sure that even though I was not their model of what they wanted to accomplish, that their voice was being heard and their needs were being met and that we were having that nice blend of me being the expert and giving them what they need, but also being w- willing to hear about what they want and making sure that was part of the process. Because I think only any good fitness program is only as good as if people are involved in the process. So if you're talking at people, if you're just looking stuff at people and they're not part of the process and I never think you're going to get the buy-in that they ultimately really want to have.
0: Yeah. I, I find like uh, with women clients, they're, a little bit more open to ideas, at least most of them. I can't say for all of them, whereas I think guys are a little bit more picky where they kind of want to know a little bit more about the science. They kind of want to know why we're doing this. Is this actually going to get me to my goal? It was kind of interesting dynamic when you're coaching two different populations like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think guys in general – well, I think guy-on-guy trainer is always – an interesting battle, too, because there's always that little male ego challenge there, sort of like two gorillas meeting in the jungle or something, (laughs) um, you know, who compound their chest a little bit harder, and, you know, and I agree, I think, you know, when, you know, some some coaches don't like it when clients challenge them, and I just, I actually get excited when a client asks me a question, because that means they're engaged in the process, and and even if I don't have the answer, that's okay, I think, you know, people can respect the fact if you're like, hey, I don't know, that's a great question, let me find out more about you, because you just can't seemingly be an expert about everything physiologically. I mean, doctors aren't, physios aren't, um, but I think being honest with people and giving them the idea that you're going to be informed the best of your ability is, is a great start. And, you know, also just being able to communicate at their level. I've heard coaches vomit information, as I call it, you know, on, on their client. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like their client didn't get any more information out of that conversation than if they just read it in a textbook, which they'd have no clue about. And usually what I try to do is when someone asks me a question, I try to sit back and go, what's the real question? Because, you know, something, and I'm sure you've been through it. Like, someone asks you a question. What they're asking you is not actually their question. You know, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. So I had a client for a long time. He was a very successful businessman in his 50s. And he's like, you know, one day he just goes, Josh, you know, how, how come we don't train like on the bench a lot? And how come we just don't do a lot of the stuff, you know, that you would normally see at the gym? And, you know, he wasn't wanting a physiological dissertation upon functional training. He just wanted to know what he was doing was good and right because it was different. And sometimes when you're doing something so different than everybody else, it does make you scratch your head and go, why am I the only one doing this? Uh, And so I just simply explained to him, I said, Brad, I said, if I could make you a million dollars in a month or a million dollars in two years, which one would you prefer? He was like, well, a million dollars in a month for sure. I said, that's basically what this process is doing for you. We're getting you results in a much faster way. And just with that simple analogy, he's like, cool. You know, he was like, he bought in? Because he didn't really want to know about sacrameters and, you know, the ATP systems or anything like that. He wanted to know that even though he was doing something different, was it actually better or was it just different? And so I think trying to put ourselves in our client's position and trying to understand the questions they're really asking are very important for us to effectively communicate and then getting them buy-in into the training process.
0: That's why when you see, like, if you go to a big box gym, like the guys who train there they'll just do what they know and it's usually a warm up set of bench and then they'll try to slap on plates as much as they can and then maybe some bicep curls after
1: oh absolutely i mean i think of this industry too because it is young and we don't have you know standard qualifications that we look for it's a it's an industry that defaults often to aesthetics so the the buffest guy the best looking woman tend to be the experts in the gym because most people aren't educated enough to know what makes for a good trainer, what makes for a good coach. What should I be looking for? What should I be asking them? Um, and so I think that's probably, probably part of that growth development process of the industry. Is like until we have these standards where we like, yeah, that's what makes up a pretty good coach. Then people are I think always going to be left to you know trying to figure out who looks the best in the gym and asking them the questions, right? I think we all did that when we were younger, and you know we were trying to find out who to follow and who to lead and who to belong to. So, you know, it's one of those things. I don't blame, you know, a lot of the people as much as I do, just the the growing pains that I think our industry is going to go through for the next probably 20 to 30 years before we have industries that really have those outlines of qualifications.
0: Yeah, it's tough because I remember when I first started training, I was at a big box gym where, like, bodybuilding was the thing. And my coworkers were, like, the stereotypical – big beefy dudes that are probably uh, on something illegal and then people would just come up to them like, I want to look like you, train me, <laughs> right? Yeah, and then I'm yeah. like a small little, like I'm a, I'm 155, like soaking wet and I was like known as like the functional guy because I started reading about Great Cook and uh, Mike Boyle at the time and uh, people were like, oh, that's kind of cool but I'd rather go to this guy because he's buff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's you know one thing you have to be okay too with is you're not going to be for everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that a tough thing because, like you said, I mean, it's a tough industry to start with. It's a tough business. So you know, the idea of turning away people and having people not come to you because of these reasons often leaves a lot of us scratching our heads, and we want to like justify it and we want to like rationalize it. And unfortunately, you're just going to have certain people that just aren't going to be right for the style that you want to do. It's like trying, it's like trying to force someone who wants Chinese food to go to an Italian restaurant. You know, it's like, it doesn't mean the Italian restaurant's not good, but that person just didn't want Italian food. Um, So, you know, it's also being, I think it's also a better thing for the coach, too, because if you start trying to do things for people that you don't really want to train that style, then you become unhappy in the process, too. And that starts to be reflected in how you deal with a client, how you enjoy the the job as well. So, I mean, it's a tough thing. It's I think the thing comes with maturity and confidence of just being like, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm not right for you. You want to be. The dude with 21 and arms, go for it. And if I can help you any way, if you have a problem later on that I can help you with, then I'm going to be here for you. And, you know, and, and just being okay with what it is that you're about. And I think um, that's one of the things that took us a long time was just being okay when people try to challenge us one form or another, just being like, hey, this is what we're about and we may not be for you. And that's okay. Um, but hopefully in the future when your priorities change or something else changes in your training, we may become the thing for you.
0: Yeah, definitely. So moving to the next question, so you kind of made the sandbag almost like mainstream. So can you kind of talk about why you chose the sandbag as like a training tool compared to something else?
1: Sure. You know, I had uh, been in the university settings for quite some time. So like strength conditioning was not like an unfamiliar thing uh, for me. So, you know, the difference I like to give people between strength conditioning and fitness is like athletes have to do what you say. And the priorities are different in strength conditioning than it is in fitness, as far as what qualities you're trying to develop and the time that you have available and so forth. So it really is, it's, it's a similar concept, but a different field. Um, But the most important part was that, you know, we were focused upon trying to make people perform better. And, uh, you know, it's funny when I look back, we weren't doing a very good job because a lot of strength conditioning and a lot of fitness for that matter is based upon just what's been kind of recent, you know, so really again, like 1920s, thirties, I mean, the barbell is less than a hundred years old. Um, so like powerlifting, Olympic lifting are kind of relatively new sports, Mm -hmm. uh, in the grand scheme of things, lifting the way we think of lifting is a rather new thing, um, bodybuilding wasn't a big thing till probably like the forties and fifties. And even then it was pretty different than what we know of it today. Um, so on the point of that is like, you know, trying to understand the science of training and my degree is in exercise science. So, you know, I have a formal education and you know, the, the fun physiology of it, but the actual application of training was something that like we didn't get taught a lot. So, you know, watching a lot of athletes develop, you know, train, we did a lot of the classic powerlifting, we'd clean, we'd squat, you know, we'd pull-ups and bench press and that seemed fine and you know the the part that changed for me was I was trying to make myself better at the same time so I was actually retired from athletics because of my back injury um, i lost a lot using my right leg and so I couldn't obviously play basketball but I was still in a lot of pain so I was trying to do what I knew which was from the strength and conditioning side and what I quickly realized was that wasn't the right thing for me to be doing so, I got into a lot of corrective exercise programs in the late 90s. Uh, people like Paul Check uh, at the time were very innovative people. And that was before, like, before corrective exercise was a big thing. It was because it was basically either fitness or rehab, you know, or mm-hmm. fitness and strength conditioning. And so I tried a lot of the stuff, and the stuff made sense and so forth, but it just didn't make me better. And it wasn't until about 2002 that a, a friend of mine's like, hey, you got to check out this kettlebell thing going on. And I did like the online search. Yes, there was online back then. Uh, (laughs) And I looked at it and I was like, I don't know, man, like this kind of looks like what you can do with a dumbbell. He's like, trust me, just go this thing and just just see what it's about. And so in 2003, I went to the RKC and I met Pavel Zatsuin, who's made, you know, Kelvils popular again in the Western, I would say probably all over the world, but. You know, I got—I was kind of a skeptic going into it, and then I was kind of enamored with something he said right off at the very beginning, which was that he was teaching a system of movement, and the way they were teaching their system of movement was expressed through the kettlebell. And I just never heard anyone talk about movement really before. It was much more about lifts and exercises, and you know, training qualities and you know, numbers. Uh, This idea of movement was a very abstract thing. So I, I, it was one of the first times I really got something really unique out of a program. And so I asked Pavel, I'm like, okay, what, what, how do you learn more about this? How, how do I find out what this is? Because this isn't what we're learning in school. And he said, read the old stuff. And he was talking about the stuff in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And thanks to the internet, you can actually find a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things I try to do is find correlations. Like what was their inconsistent habits and patterns? And one of the things I found was you know, this use of odd objects uh, because they were all doing kind of different things, uh, all these old-time strongmen. And the reason that we wanted to emulate that or I wanted to emulate that was because they had the movement skills of a gymnast but the strength of a powerlifter, which isn't something you would see most times nowadays. You'd either see one or the other. And so they, they use these odd objects in one form or another because even though they didn't have the science, they understood things like core strength, stabilization – uh, they understood like they wouldn't say a lot of times like filling in the holes. So they understood like that the traditional lifts as we think of them were kind of limiting in the, what we were developing all around movement. So there needed to be more. And so, of course, being a former athlete, when you say something's the hardest, I wanted to go do it. So when sort of like consistently it was mentioned that a, a sandbag or a bag of some type was used and it was like the most challenging because it was so unstable, I wanted to go try it. So I did the whole army duffel bag, garbage bag thing with duct tape. And I you know, went when my garage with about 80 pounds and got my ass handed to me. And um, you know, not and being someone who's like lifted for a long time, I was like, what the hell? Like this is only 80 pounds. And so like I was intrigued. So I did what any good coach would do. I, I continued to use it myself and then it with all my clients. Um, and you know, they're like, oh, dying, sweating I'm like, this is great, right? This is yeah. awesome. And then I just had to take a step back eventually. I'm just like, what are we actually trying to accomplish? And so When I looked at, like, what were the actual, you know, results we were going for? And was it just, like, just a thing to shock people with? Or was it actually, like, an effective training uh, modality? And so, you know, outside of just being varied, we didn't have really a plan of how we are using it. We are using a lot like we would, like, substitute a barbell. So, you know, hold it, squat, you know, we'd clean it a little bit, you know, and so forth, row it, press it. Um, But then I started trying to find everything I could on sandbags. And it was pretty interesting because the internet's pretty gracious. You know, when people uh, email me and they're like, oh, you didn't invent sandbags. I'm like, okay, I never claimed I did. But the problem is if you look through the you know, history and like how much content there is, I could only find like about 40-some pages written about sandbags. Wow. Which to put that in perspective for people listening to this, there's a book, uh, a classic book on Olympic weightlifting that's almost 600 pages. Jeez. So 600, almost 600 pages on two lifts, and the whole history of sandbags had maybe a ballpark of 40 pages, mostly with pictures, uh, just random stuff. So it just dawned on me. I'm like, okay, well, here, here's the problem. We don't have a good system, and we don't have a good tool because when I, when I was using it at the time, my duffel bags, you could always find me in the commercial gym because there was a trail of sand. They followed me all through the gym.
0: <laughs> they must have loved uh, you, eh? Yeah, <laughs> they loved
1: me. And then I would ask people, I go, like, our sandbags great. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, they're great. I'm like, do you use them? They're like, no. <laughs> well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. If something's great, why don't you use it? And really, when it came down to it, it came down to the two factors it, there was no system of implementation, and there was no standard tool. And, and to give you guys an example of why the standard tool makes a big difference, this imagine if you said, hey, I want to improve my bench press. By the way, you're going to give me a program, but every time I go into a gym, the barbell is going to be extremely different. Sometimes it's going to be 14 feet long. Sometimes it's going to be 7 feet long. Sometimes it's going to be a foot long. Sometimes it's going to be one and a half inches in diameter. Sometimes it's going to be 5 inches in diameter. That would change how you lift every single time, wouldn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: It would impact your program. So without a standardized tool, people just end up just doing random things. And that's why the sandbag sort of suffered a lot. But, and, and people try to program it like something it was not. And one of the things we often say in our educational programs when we work with coaches and we don't do it to be you know, sarcastic, we do it to try to change our mindset is the first thing we tell people is this is not a barbell. And the reason that's important is because there's attributes that are very unique to our ultimate sandbag that we want to maximize. And if you don't understand the unique attributes then you're going to miss out on the whole concept of using it and the benefits it can allow for. So what we always tell people is sandbags themselves aren't great. If they were, people would be using them all the time. They'd be all over gyms. But it's a system of accomplishing specific outcomes that makes them potentially great. But you have to have the right tool and you have to have the right system to go about using them well.
0: And when I look at the sandbag, like it's almost like a great alternative. If you know, If you have sore joints, it's just a little bit easier than, you know, strapping a barbell on your back with 225 and hoping for the best?
1: Well, I think what it does is people innately figure out a lot of things and they have a hard time doing it. You know, for in, in your example, you know, a lot of people, when they think of a squat, they'll always think of a back squat and yeah. just just a word taught. But, you know, when you look at the axial loading upon and compression upon the lumbar spine, you realize most people suck <laughs> yeah. when they do back squats. Definitely. And in fact, we consistently test people, we test their mobility before uh, back splint. we test it afterwards, and their mobility always decreases. And a part of that is just the body does not take well to a lot of compression and axial loading. Um, and then, well, that begs the question, well, why do people do it? And, and unfortunately, the answer is not much more than because they can handle the most load. Um, but the research shows us that we, we've been taught wrong about strength. We're, we're always taught that the higher load yields the greater outcome. But that's not what the research shows at all. Research consistently shows that other variables stimulate muscle activity and strength outcomes more than just purely load. give you an example, there's a classic uh, squat research um, paper that showed the same amount of muscle activity being used in two different loads. One that was 20 kilograms lighter than another. And if I tell people only that there's two types of squats, one has 20 kilos more than the other, which one was more effective more times than not, people are going to say the heavier load. But the thing is, I didn't give you all the variables. Mm-hmm. It was a front squat compared to a back squat. So by changing the placement of the load, it changed the perceived stress on the body. Actually, the 20 kilogram load that was lighter produced the same amount of muscle activity. So load is not the determining factor. Other attributes are load position, body position, plane of motion. You know, are more important than just purely just load. So unfortunately, a lot of strength training programs become incredibly incomplete and non-progressive because we're focusing upon the only one of a multitude of variables. And so while load is an important variable, it's not the exclusive one that we're often taught for. So again, going back to your example, what people innately find with the sandbag and what we're doing is that they have all types of weakness that they wouldn't perceive otherwise. And when they started addressing these weaknesses, their overall strength goes up. And the reason they feel better with these lighter loads is because they're actually teaching their body to move more efficiently. And it's really, if you ask people, why do we strength train? Now, cosmetically, you can say bigger muscles, and that's all great, mm-hmm. say for fat loss. But if you're talking for, like, a performance benefit, it's to move more efficiently. So we go back time and time again. To understand how to create better movement efficiency, you have to understand how the body works. So the, to understand the sandbag and the way we use it is you have to understand how the body works. And so that's, the, that's where we start with people from, and that's where we understand, like, hey, did you know that? Your body's actually going to move better and feel better by holding the load in this position than having it on your back, even though it's lighter, and that you know that load isn't the only variable that you have to take into consideration because these other variables are going to impact the results you get too and all of a sudden it opens up this big door for people to create better progressions of better systems and can address more specific needs.
0: I also like giving the example to my clients and when they ask like so why are we using a sandbag or using this and I'm like, well would you uh, win in a wrestling match with a farmer? And they're like, yeah, no way. And I'm like, well, is this the same concept?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think you know, it's funny because the gym is a very sterile environment. Yeah. And I always, give, I always used to give this story about when I played basketball. And I used to go, I grew up in Chicago, and there was a lot of good basketball players. And if you wanted to play the really good basketball players, you go down to the park. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you see the best basketball players that weren't on any teams, but they were just great park players. And you know you never feared the kid with the super clean shoes and the perfect ball and the yeah. super nice. You always you always dread the kid with the shoes that were kind of broken down, the ball that looked like it's seen better days, and you know the maybe a couple holes in those shirts because you know they could play anywhere, anytime. And you know a lot of times in the gym, people train only as though they're going to perform when everything's perfect, everything's balanced, everything's organized, everything's just right. And what the sandbag represents is like what you are saying, a little bit more this real-world environment. Mm -hmm. This idea that things aren't always perfect, and every rep is going to be slightly different. And so what you need to do is you have to understand the side of what we call movement accuracy. One of the things that makes a sandbag so incredibly challenging is that if you don't have good movement accuracy, it's not an issue of just how strong you are. It's can you move accurately enough to move the weight. Generally, when we think of moving weight, we think of it just as a muscular effort, but it's not. It's actually a test of efficiency too. So it's a shift in how people think about fitness as well. And that's sort of where that old time strongman side comes in is like, one thing they would always say is how do you make a lightweight feel very heavy? And there was a reasons that they would say that, but one of them is that you would challenge different qualities of your body when you did that. And when you started challenging how you move differently, you could start moving in all these different types of arenas. And that's the cool thing Is like when people train our system for a while, when they do transition to something else, when they try something else, they pick it up so much faster because they're not used to being in this incredibly sterile environment that most people train in.
0: Yeah, definitely. How would you like program, like if someone wanted to start using a sandbag in their workouts, like how would you program like a full day for like an average person to do like say a full body workout?
1: So we obviously function off moving patterns, which may not be, you know, incredibly new to a lot of people you're talking to, but... The movement patterns we look for are, uh, we follow sort of Dr. McGill's line. And Dr. McGill is one of the leading experts in spinal mechanics and health. And we look at how the body functions. And we talked about that being our baseline. So he looks at, you know, push, pull, hinge, squat, lunge, balance, twist, and gait. And, you know, what we do is we look at, if I ask you what's the most fundamental movement pattern we all do, the answer should be gait. (laughs) unfortunately people say hinge and squat and i go squat and they're like yeah to go to the bathroom like how much are you going to the bathroom (laughs) like compared to walking
0: yeah
1: okay so but the problem is that what we do in everyday life i.e walking is hard to understand in the gym right because we think of exercises but all those qualities i just said push pull hinge squat lunge are all qualities of walking so what we do is we break down our exercises in terms of those movements so for example, if we're going to have a horizontal push, that may be something like our lateral drag, which if I'm in a push-up position, I'm slowly dragging the weight across my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to have a hinge, that might be represented by a clean or a rear step deadlift. Um, if we're going to have a lunge, that may be our shoulder lunge, max lunge. So we're going to break it down by pattern. and by We're not going to do every pattern because that gets very fatiguing, but we'll probably pick... You know, if I do a push, a horizontal push, I'll do a vertical push the next time. So that would be something overhead. So that could be a press. So I usually do the opposite. So if I do a a dominant hinge movement, like a clean on one day, we may do a squat the next time. Um, That generally yields about four or six exercises in a workout. And because they're so full body and so demanding, that takes a lot of the energy and the nervous system to do well. So people are pretty fried just have four or six exercises. And we tend to tell people, usually start on less than more because people are surprised at how tiring it becomes because you're integrating so much of the body at once. So you're being more efficient with a workout, but you do have to think differently. It's not, hey, we're going to focus on your pecs today. Hey, we're going to focus on your triceps. The nice thing is you'll get that side cosmetic benefit because you are activating a lot of those muscles, but you can do it at a higher frequency because you're not just obliterating them in one workout.
0: So how heavy is heavy enough for, like, say, a guy or a woman if they were to, like, choose a sandbag?
1: So usually as a starting uh, place, you know, we have two variables when we talk about sandbags. We have load and we have dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one reason that we have five different sizes is not just a loading factor. It's a, it's a dimensional factor, too. So, you know, generally we tell guys a strength bag, uh, which is a little bit longer, uh, about uh, – 50 pounds or about, you know, 24 kilos is good. Uh, for a lady, um, generally we're going to recommend like our, our power bag at about 30 pounds or somewhere about 15 kilos is pretty good. Uh, what's going to happen from that is that's a baseline. And so the size will also influence the exercise. So, which is a, a different concept for a lot of people. So certain drills are done with better with certain dimensional, uh, sandbags. So, that's going to give people a good starting point. And where people usually go from there is that the guys will usually go a little bit lighter and smaller and the ladies will go a little heavier and bigger. Uh, just just because, not always, but, you know, it fits people's personalities better. Women are a little bit more into movement. They'll do a little bit more of the complex patterns at first. Uh, guys, they have to sort of be reinforced that this can be challenging, even though it's significantly lighter, than they may be used to lifting. Um, but time and time again, like, people are shocked at how heavy, like, 50 pounds is or 30 pounds is, uh, compared to what they've been lifting. Like I would say like a very heavy ultimate sandbag is like hundred, 120 pounds, which doesn't sound heavy when you talk about barbell weight or even a lot of times for people with kettlebells. But it, it's something that I would say the average guy can't even lift a 120 pound bag.
0: It'll probably crush him. <laughs> Yeah. So from like a fat loss perspective, do you think a sandbag would be a useful tool for someone
1: Absolutely. I mean, because if you look at one of the biggest uh, principles of fat loss, it's basically not adapting to a stimulus. Um, You always want to keep some level of chaos in the system. The more efficient you become, the less fat you burn. Right? Uh, If I run the same mile the same way every single time, I'm not going (laughs) to lose much body fat. So the beauty of the sandbag is that every rep is just slightly different. And the way you can move it is different enough every time that basically you can create a lot of similar movement patterns, but uh, stimulate them in different ways. So you always keep that little level of chaos uh, in, in the body system. And so, I mean, I think that's why it's such a popular fat loss tool is because it's a fun way of training because a subtle change to an exercise makes a big difference, but it's an effective change too where you feel like you're working. It's not just like you're sitting there and you're just hoping that it's calorie burning. Like you feel like your body just gets that, tired sense it's sort of like i tell people after they you can't point to a specific muscle you sort of feel this tired and that's where really you're feeling all those muscles being active and that's being really efficient with the training you know if i had to choose and i know i'm sound biased but the reason that we go after the sandbag so much is because when we sit down and go over like i decide which tool i'm going to use in a workout i gotta use a tool that can't be done with something else if i'm using a tool that just is for variety's sake it doesn't have a lot of meaning to me mm-hmm. i have, when i pick a tool if, it's, if i pick a kettlebell if i pick a dumbbell if i pick a band or if i pick a trx or something like that i'm picking it because it does something uniquely different than anything else and so the reason that so much of our workouts do consist of our ultimate sandbags mm-hmm. is because when it comes time to say what does another tool do better we have a hard time figuring that out so you know unless a tool is going to bring something unique to the equation we just change the other variables we don't need to actually change the equipment very much,
0: I also like using the sandbag for like conditioning at the end of the workout because it yeah you like you'd say you can pick up a fifty pound bag, but if you choose the right exercises in five minutes, that thing's gonna make you finished and done by the end of the five minutes
1: oh yeah, I mean I we have very well-conditioned people that start training in our system and they get tired very quickly. And a lot of it is just learning how many holes in their strength training they really had. And you know, a lot, of, a lot of training programs, unfortunately, don't do a very good job of building the body up like we think. They just leave a lot of massive holes. So when you put people in positions where they have to be more accurate with their movement, they have to be more precise, they have to use the right muscles and they get exposed, then it just puts a lot of stress on the body. It's a positive stress. And they're going to get better, but I think that's why they're just constantly just shocked how at lighter weights just become so much more uh, challenging to them because it's just movement in ways that just haven't been doing. And what they most people have become is they become specialists in the gym. They're very good at a very select number of things, but you ask them to move in more drastic ways and more challenging ways, and they just don't have that ability. And so you can do a lot in a very short amount of time in a very short uh, amount of space. Uh, that's why, you know, we do a lot of military programs is that they can take it anywhere and do it in very small areas and do a lot within that given amount of time and space that they have available.
0: You know, you've like given your client something really good when you like introduce, like say the sandbag for the first time and they're doing it and they're like, why is this so fricking hard? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's good. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things too, when you talked about you know earlier that. You have people that come from many different backgrounds. And so they have preconceptions about a lot of different things. And most people don't have a preconception about the sandbag. Like, you know, you'll have people that come in the, in the gym. They'll be super psyched by the barbell. Some will be totally threatened by it. Mm-hmm. Um, with the sandbag, they just don't know what to think. So it's usually the impact and the outcome that the implement provides that starts to take people that direction. And I'll say most people, like, have this love-hate relationship with it because it's just flat out work. You know, And I I always tell people, they're like, why are we doing this? I go, because if I thought there was a better and more efficient way of getting results, we would do that. I don't make people work hard just for the sake of working hard. We do it because it's going to fit in with their ideas of getting the fastest result possible. And it's going to give them the best result possible. And so I think when you put them in that terms and when people start to experience it and they see it and they get better at things and they, you know, I always tell coaches, you got to be careful what you get excited by because clients usually just get excited by what you get excited by Mm -hmm. because they don't have much of a frame of reference like i don't know is a deadlift 200 kilos good they have most people don't know but if you act super excited about it they're gonna think it's awesome yeah so it's just putting the right priorities and the right thing if you get if you show people how they progress and how they got better by things and you know they're gonna be more excited by the process they're gonna be more apt to train and you know i remember that i have one client she's awesome she's like a older southern bell type and she just kept telling me time and time again how uncoordinated she was. And I'm like, why do you keep saying you're so uncoordinated? Like, I kept throwing things at her, and she did great. It was just because that was the what she had been told her whole life, that women growing up in that area of the country at that time were not supposed to be athletic. It wasn't feminine. So she had this pre-programmed idea that she was not coordinated. But by giving her things that she could do and be successful by, she started breaking that down to the point where her biggest thing was not how much weight she lost, but the fact she'd be so excited to go back home to her husband and tell her husband what she did that day because she was so proud of herself. Like To me, that's a bigger win in the scope of fitness than just like losing inches and pounds was empowering this woman who had been told her whole life that she wasn't good enough to be fit and giving her the ability to realize that she could use her body in these incredibly athletic ways and be proud of herself.
0: That's why I really enjoy training women because, you know, they step into the gym, they don't really have any kind of, you know, idea what's going to happen and then, you train with them for a while, and then you're like, "Oh my god!" You just deadlifted your body weight, and they're like, "Oh, is that good?" It's like, "Yeah, it's freaking amazing!" And then you go to like they start doing chin-ups. You're like, "Holy crap!" You're doing chin-ups. They're like, "Yeah, I am. I am getting strong," and it's just amazing to see that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people I go, you know, people usually don't come to us because things are going really well. Yeah. You know, they're, they're they come to us because things aren't going well, and so. Their first inclination is not to tell you how awesome they are. Their first thing is to probably put up a self-defense mechanism of telling them, telling you what they can't do. That's why people tell you, you know, I'm not good, I'm not fast, I'm not strong, I'm not, I'm not able to do that. It's because they actually believe in it. It's a self-defense mechanism. It's very much like when I used to work with obese children, you know, parents were very much discouraged why their kids wouldn't even try um, to exercise sometimes. And I said, well, you have to understand, you know, Johnny doesn't want to look stupid. And, you know, I think adults are very much the same way. When, when you don't feel good about yourself and you put yourself in an environment where you feel like you're going to look stupid, I think that's where the defense mechanisms go up. And when you can start breaking those down and you start seeing that you're capable, then, you know, the door swings wide open. It's sort of like if we were as fitness pros put ourselves in an environment, we wouldn't be comfortable. And I don't know, maybe it was cooking or maybe it's like I was saying earlier, accounting. And we feel like we're going to say something stupid and someone says, you did, did well, we're going to be more apt to be part of that process and be more active. And the same thing is with the fitness, and that's why having a system in place rather than just a bunch of exercise that you throw at people is so important. Because if you know where to start people and how to make them successful, most people are not going to not come back because they're successful. Most people don't come back because you don't make them feel part of the process, and they can't be good.
0: Oh, definitely. Like I, that's why I also think like the gym that they go to, the community and the culture have to be like, spot on. Because if you just kind of go to an example again, is like the big box gym. The moment you go in, almost everyone's, everyone's eyes are like looking at you and judging you and seeing what you're going to do, whereas if you go to a gym with a trainer and the whole staff knows who you are, all the clients around you know who you are, you kind of feel like, oh, I'm not alone in this, and everyone else here is to help me.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I tell a lot of young coaches, and you know, I go, I travel now around the world, and I go to a lot of different gyms. I always look at a couple of different things on, on their websites and their, and their gyms when I went, enter, and that's... Let's go. where's the client highlights? Um, I think a lot of trainers, you know, we're taught and we're just our program that we need to highlight ourselves a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the most meaningful thing to our clients. I think our clients are looking for someone like them in our gym. So when they come to the website, you know, they want to see someone like them. Um, you know, they go to the gym, they want to see someone like them doing the program. You know, if I'm, you know, right now I'm 40 years old, I've had some spinal fusions. If I go into a gym, and it's a bunch of like 18 year old football players. I'm not going to feel like that's me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, I'm looking for someone who's maybe in their forties or, you know, things like that, you know, or if I'm a woman and I'm going into a gym and it's like guys with their half their, sh- all their shirts off, you know, sweating <laughs> up a storm, I may not feel like, you know, this is a place for me. So I always tell coaches, one of the best things that you can do is make the clients the superstars. And they are the superstars. They're the ones coming to you for the service anyways. And But having them be your voice is better than anything we can say as a coach. Because like we said at the very beginning, we may not be what that person wants to emulate. So they have to find that role model. If they see someone like them doing the things that you're going to be asking them to do, and they're being successful, and they're positive about it, and they're excited about it, that's a better buy-in process than anything you know, we could stay in a million years through our marketing or other avenues so I think yeah I mean finding an environment that works for the person but making sure that we're aware that we're trying to create those environments to make those people feel welcome are definitely important
0: yeah I also find it difficult sometimes because like you know you'll have a client who goes on social media and they read up on something or they see someone on Instagram half naked shredded and they're like oh I need to be like that and then the next day they come to you and they're like why
1: don't I look like that? And it's like, uh. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Well, it's okay. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you don't. you have to have those coming to truth moments. Like, yeah. I remember a client. Um, she she I would train she and her, her husband independently for quite some time, and um, they were very well off. But she was unhappy, and just personal stuff that was just hers that made her unhappy. And so she'd always turn to food when she was upset. And I remember she came in the gym, and she's like, I have to tell you. I ate a whole bag of Doritos Ranch last night, right before bed. I'm not talking one of those small bags. I'm talking one of those big bags. I said, "Okay." I said, are, "Are we past that then? Are we? Are we past?" And she's like, "Okay, yeah, I'm over it." Probably about 20 minutes later, she's like, "Josh, how do I fix my butt? My butt's just not looking good." I go, "You know, a bag of Doritos doesn't help." And it's not to embarrass her. It's to make them understand that really, at the end of the day, they have more control than we do over how they look and they have to also want to be into a lifestyle that's conducive to what they want. You know, I talked to my wife, she goes, she she falls victim to the, I should look like this philosophy a lot. And she looks great, but she thinks she has to be ripped and shredded. I go, well, do you not want to be able to be social? Do you not want to be able to have a glass of wine? Do you not want to be able to do this and that? Do you want to live around food constantly? Like where your life revolves around food. She's like, I don't want that life. I go, so you want the result, but you don't want the lifestyle. So they can't be cohesive. You can't have both. So I said, you know, you have to be willing to be happy. Or what's more important? Is it the lifestyle or the result? And, you know, and then I think unfortunately a lot of clients don't realize what goes into looking like what they see sometimes, obviously. And that comes with a little education, too, and go, listen, you know, pose it to them. If you want to look like this, this is what that takes. Do you want that? And there's a moment of honesty like, not really. You know, I want to be able to go out with my family on vacation and I want to be able to celebrate my son's birthday and have a piece of cake with them. Because, I mean, you've probably been around it. I've been around it where you go out with these people and God bless them. They're ripped and they're sticking to their diets and their macros and yeah. they can't eat with you but they can pull out their protein shake. Um, you know, Or they can't, you know, they, they, they would love to go out with you that night but they can't. They got to go do their cardio. That's fine. That's the lifestyle they're happy with. But you have to have the client understand is that the lifestyle they want? And so, you know, again, it's it's a priorities thing and it's just about education, I think, a lot of times.
0: I was going to say, why do you think, like, the whole idea of, like, weight loss is such a challenging task for an average person? Do do you think they have, like, unrealistic expectations or do they feel like everyone's succeeding but them? Like, what's your kind of take on that whole thing?
1: (laughs) I guess my analogy is, is, like, why Why do fitness people have such a hard time with money? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, shouldn't be that hard, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, recently, we recently moved to Las Vegas and um, became friends with a gentleman who's the department head of exercise science for UNLV. And his wife is actually a nutritionist and she's worked with sports teams. And she actually worked a lot more with um, people with uh, eating disorders. And... Uh, she has a book coming out and she, a lot of times she won't work with people on their eating habits unless they're seeing a therapist. And I think the challenge is that there's such an emotional side to fitness and food. Um, it's it, food is a very social thing. It's attached with a, you know, uh, emotional habits, you know, families, some families, you, you eat when you're angry, you eat when you're sad, you eat when you're happy. Um, So there's a lot attached to food. Uh, I think, you know, people not addressing the real problem. Like, you know, years ago, I, I, I did a sales course by a gentleman. He said, to sell effectively, you always have to find the person's pain. And I didn't understand what that meant right at that moment, but what he went on to explain was that when someone says they lose, want to lose 20 pounds, that's kind of meaningless in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? Like, what's yeah. 20 pounds? And then you ask more questions, and you find out that uh, 20 pounds was what they weighed in high school Um, the last time they felt good about themselves and the last time, by the way, they were in a happy relationship. So there's more attached to the 20 pounds than just this mysterious 20 pounds. And so I think, you know, what happens for a lot of people is they never take the time to really identify why they're aiming for the goals that they're aiming for. And, you know, by not doing that, then they can't address the real issues. And there might be times like, Hey, you know, we may not be the right professionals. They may need therapy at the same time which is not an embarrassing thing in my book at all like i would applaud someone if they admitted to me hey they're coming to me for fitness but they're dealing with some um emotional stuff on their own with a therapist because to me you can't do one with the other uh, the other it's not like people don't know that broccoli is good for them yeah. right it's not like they don't know that exercise is not good for them so there's other obstacles that are staying in their way sometimes it's family i mean i'm sure you face that where people in their social circles try to derail them because Mm -hmm. they feel embarrassed by it. Right. Um, There's people that have these things like I only exercise when I feel like I'm just going to like, it's just going to hurt the whole time. Exercise is going to hurt the whole time. Like you wouldn't want to do something if you thought it was going to hurt the whole time. So I think it's also changing people's perceptions of what exercise and fitness programs are and and saying realistic expectations and, you know, and, and in the right environment, like, can, you know, what, what made Starbucks so successful, right? It wasn't like the most amazing coffee in the world is that they became that other place for people to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, and, and for all the problems that CrossFit has, I think one thing they've done very well is they've become a place for that other place for people to go. Like people will actually go to their CrossFit box instead of the bar, instead of going home or instead of another hour of work. And so I think if you can create an environment where people actually enjoy being there and it starts to boost the other positive habits then I don't think fitness becomes that challenging. I think fitness becomes simple. And I also think people got to give themselves a little bit of a break. Like, I think people see us and they think we're perfect all the time. I remember a client was like, during the holidays, like, do you like cookies, Josh? I'm like, I love cookies. He goes, but you don't eat them. I go, well, I try not to eat the cookies. He goes, well, I don't understand. I go, well, I love cookies. They're just not good for my goals, so therefore I try to avoid them. And so we have, like, I have certain habits that we don't have in our house. We don't keep bad foods in our house because that just encourages bad behaviors for us. So it's dealing with behaviors, it's dealing with emotions, it's dealing, it's trying to find the real pain. I think it goes a long ways for people than just going, hey, you know what? You just didn't do this exercise. If you just did this workout program, it'd be it'd fix everything. I think it's often much deeper. And when you're honest with people, and people are honest with you, then I think you get to the actual success for them.
0: Yeah, I find sometimes a lot of people too are always kinda jumping ship to another, you know, this is gonna be it because I've tried everything else but they haven't really tried everything else but they right. keep like jumping to like, Oh, I'm gonna do this diet instead. Oh, I bought this book and I'm gonna follow this cleanse or whatever and they keep kind of going over and over and spilling over to with bad habits and they're like, Oh, I'm it's probably something with my metabolism then.
1: Yeah, but you're, you're always one of those people. I always say, say, say like family falls in yeah. that category. You know, like you know, family. Well, how do I lose this? And you're like, I can't even start with you. Um, just because they're not, they're not really wanting to address the issues. And so you're always. It's like we talked about at the very beginning. You've got people that are just not right for you. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it's we want to help people so much as coaches that we sort of try to push and push uh, upon helping the people, even though they're not wanting it. And it becomes a lose lose situation. And so when someone does that, you know, a lot of times I'm like, that's just their personality. They're searching for something they haven't found yet. And that's cool, but I'm going to try to put our focus upon the people that are willing to listen, that are willing to be the the type of people we want to work with, and we can help lead in a positive path. Because you just can't help everyone, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting just like watching clients' behaviors. And I've said this example before in my previous episodes, but I have one client in particular he's been with me, I think now three years. And in the beginning when I was training him, he was like showing up one day, he signed up one day a week and he maybe would show up in a month twice and kind of just like went through the motions, whatever. And only this year he's like, okay, I need to take this stuff serious. He went to three days a week, started eating breakfast, had protein shakes at work Eight vegetables, and I was like, "What? What? Like, what happened?" And he's like, "It was just time. I had enough of it, and it was just time." So it's almost like, almost the timing too, and when people actually make it a priority, and they're like, "I'm gonna go all in and not just do it because I have to." Oh,
1: well, absolutely. I mean, I, I give, um, you know, I, I like to say I'm just getting old and wiser, and maybe just getting old. Um, it's like when I hear like a lot of coaches, they'll, they'll belly ache about their clients. Mm-hmm. I go okay, how much money you got saved? And they look at me a little funny. I go, how's your investments doing? <laughs> and they look at me funny. I'm like, what investments? I go, we're, we like to think because we like to address the fitness side that we're healthy. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're human beings too. And we do things that we like to do and where we're good at. And, you know, sometimes, like, even for us, like, I know trainers that are brilliant coaches, but they suck at saving money. You know, i like, but how could you suck at saving money? You just have to put it in the bank and not use it. Yeah. So I think to your point, I think it's just like certain people get to a certain point in your life. You're like, OK, that's enough. not I got to start changing habits, you know, and I got to figure out what I really want to accomplish and if I'm going to go on the right path for it. And we all need that wake up call. Sometimes it's different for everybody. And, you know, you I've had clients that I've worked with for over a decade that their real goal was just to be accountable to work out. Like their goal wasn't to lose X amount of inches, lift X amount of weight. They just knew that they needed to come to me every time because it, they felt good when they worked out with me and that was their goal. And that was fine. And you know, for me to push a different agenda on them wouldn't have been appropriate because that was good enough for them. If they came to me and said, Hey Josh, I want to accomplish X and that changes the conversation. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, it's like for some of them, it's just like, they just had to get to this time. You know, I had another one is like, and I'm sure you've gone through it where you train a spouse and they're like, my, Significant other has to work out with you. I go, no, they don't. I said, they don't have to, when they want to work out with me, they're more than welcome to. But you trying to pressure them will not be a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's like I never force fitness upon anyone, you know, because it's one of those things like you have to be, it takes up a lot of your life, doesn't it? I mean, you have to make time for it. You have to do other things like get good sleep. You have to start changing your eating habits. You have to, you know, go to the gym, give effort where, you know, maybe not something that you enjoy doing you you may rather be going somewhere else, but you're going to make an effort to go here. Um, so it's it's a big commitment. I think bigger than people think. And that's why a lot of people like get overwhelmed. And that's why, you know, unfortunately too our industry sells the easy pill, still like the magic pill, like, Hey, just do this. It'll be fine. And like, cause that goes to what we all want. Right. yeah I mean, if you told me I could download an app that would make me a million dollars, I'm downloading it, <laughs> you know, but that's just not reality. And so it's like, I think, you know, when people see that, they have to be in that right mindset. And that's why, like, you see the fast drop-off after New Year's, right? People yeah. get hyped up. They're more like, it's almost like they're on a sugar high, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. so amped up nowadays. I can't wait. Okay, I'm going to come down. On. I don't really want to put this type of effort in. And the ones that actually last are the ones that were in that right mindset. And that, that's why I think having, like, the initial con- the session that I have with people, like, we'd always do a little workout, get them moving a little bit, because that's what they expected. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to talk to them. I wanted to find out where they were coming from. I wanted to find out what was going on in their life. You know, I'd ask them things like, have you done an exercise program before? They said yes. I'd be like, how come you're not still doing it? Uh, I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't have time for it. And I'd be like, did you enjoy doing it? Was it something you'd want to do again? And people are always ask, like, really confused when you ask them those questions because yeah. no one's ever asked them that. No one's ever asked them, why aren't you working out or why don't you want to eat better?" or you know, what, what's the obstacles you face? what are the challenges? You, you know I'm not going to make you eat broccoli if you tell me that's the food you hate the most in the world. Because you know why it's just not going to happen? Let's find what you will do and make that work, and then let's start building off that positive habit.
0: And it's funny when I, like, if I got a new client for a consultation and they're all, like, amped up and jacked up to start working out, they're like, yeah, I want to, like, work out four days a week, and I'm like, okay, well, what were you doing before? Nothing. Maybe right. we should start, like, with one day a week and kind of build on that, and they're almost like, oh, really? But I'm like, you, you got to know that if you go, yeah, like you said, in New Year's, if you go too hard too fast, you are probably end up burning out and you're like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore.
1: No, it's like I remember a strength coach... Uh, once said, he's like he would always turn away the athletes that would come to him like I'm willing to do anything you say. He's like, really, you don't want to do anything? Like, yeah, anything. It was bullshit <laughs> because you know because because then the first thing you'd be like, okay, got to cut down your drinking. Oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. But you got to come here at five thirty in the morning. Cut you do seven. We're well, not willing to do anything. Yeah, you just just he <laughs> did. So I think it's like you know, you, I appreciate people's enthusiasm and I don't want to derail that, but I also want them to be realistic. Like you said, you know, if you're going from zero and you're going to go four, let's let, show me you can do three.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, show me consistently can do three and then we can have that discussion. Do you need four? Um, you know, one of the things I try to help young coaches with is the fact that it's really hard because we're not really, we're taught about sets and reps and we're taught about exercise. But we're not taught really how to communicate with people. And how to work with people. And that's a, such a big part of what we do. Oh, yeah. But to sit there and like have the person set forth realistic expectations and realize that they're paying us for our expertise. So you should be the determining factor. Like you don't go to your doctor. Your doctor doesn't say, take these twice a day. You go, how about I take them four? <laughs> yeah. No, you're relying on your doctor to say, no, you take that twice a day. Um, so I think, you know, to revisit, when I have that discussion with your, your client, go like, You're, you're, if they're trying to do something else, go, you're paying me to be the expert. So if you want me to be my expertise, then this is what we should start with. And I sort of treat it almost like a dojo, right? Mm -hmm. You can't walk into a martial arts student and go, "Ah, I want to be a black belt. Yeah. No, you have to earn it a little bit. You have to earn and show me that you can do it, and then we'll take you to the next level. Even in physical therapy, they do it, right? When I started my physical therapy, I didn't walk in there and go, See, I'm going to start, you know, some serious weights in my squats. No. Show me you can hip bridge, you know. So I, I think it's just, I, I, it's not sometimes in our demeanor to be like, hey, you know, take control of the situation. But I think that's innately what some people want because I, I'll tell you what, a big mistake I've made in the past is when I've let the inmates run the asylum, you know, analogy. When I was just like so desperate to have clients in, in the beginning that I just said okay to everything they, they wanted. Yeah. And the problem with that is it wasn't what was best for them, it wasn't what was best for me, and it wasn't a good experience for them either. So I, I think it's just, you no know, if you have a system and a philosophy you believe in, being true to it, being honest with people, and saying forth those and holding people accountable to them, and then that way they actually end up respecting you more and actually part of the process makes it easier to weed out people that work with you well and people that don't.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, so now last question because we're already at an hour and a little bit over. But um, where can people find you online to learn more about sandbag training? And if you have any projects or speaking engagements, where can they all find that stuff?
1: You know, we update our blog probably five, six days a week with free information. Um, So if people want to go to our website, it's dvrtfitness.com. We have over 700 free videos. Uh, People go through our website. On there, too, they obviously can learn about our Ultimate Sandbags, but we have our, our, our certifications and our workshops uh, list on there. Um, we don't usually post our um, conferences, but you know, if you email us through the website, we can give you a list of events that we're going to be at. But A lot of times I tell people you know, we have a lot of um, resources on there, free resources and uh, very low-cost resources, too. If people want to check out our training programs, we have a lot of downloadable programs from corrective exercise to performance to fat loss. So something that, you know, everybody's sort of need and want. And, you know, our staff is super knowledgeable about what we do. So if anyone ever has a question, they can just email us to the website or they can email us at info at com.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate any time to share. All right. So that is going to wrap up Episode 26 with Josh Henkin. If you guys have any more questions, feel free to ask me on Twitter, Instagram, email, whatever you guys want. And let me know what you want to learn in 2017 because we only have a week left in 2016. And I want to have a new focus for 2017 for everyone. So leave your comments and any kind of feedback you may have and we'll uh, hit that up on 2017. Until next time.